Hello and thanks for tuning in for this edition of Stratford Talks, the monthly podcast where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at some of our analysis and global affairs. I'm Ben Sheen. And I'm Marla Moore. And we're your hosts for this show. Our show today is divided into two segments. First, military analyst Paul Floyd will be with us to discuss both the tactical and structural challenges that American and British military trainers are facing in Iraq. And then we'll be joined by Lauren Goodrich, who covers the former Soviet Union for Stratfor, and she'll be talking about the art of criminology and why it's useful to understanding Russia today. As always, if you'd like to subscribe to our free podcast feed, look us up under Stratfor on the iTunes Store. You can connect with us on Facebook or Twitter as well, where our handle is at Stratfor. Over the past few months, both the United States and Britain have announced deployments of hundreds of military trainers to Iraq, where they're preparing local troops to help fend off the Islamic State. These are obviously not the first deployments of their kind, but the intensifying commitment underscores the fact that training troops, whether in Iraq or Afghanistan, has been a notoriously challenging task for coalition forces for a number of years. So today, we'd like to explore some of the reasons that's the case. And I'm here now with not one, but two veterans who have firsthand experience in Iraq. Uh, Stratford's military analyst, Paul Floyd, a former Army Ranger who served tours in both Baghdad and Ramadi, and also my co-host, Ben Sheen, who served with the British Royal Forces in the Basra sector. To start out, I'll point out that U.S. Defense Secretary Ashton Carter recently stirred up some controversy by saying that Iraqi forces lack the will to fight Islamic State militants. This isn't exactly an isolated point of view, but in your experience, is it accurate or even valid? I would say that it kind of misses the point uh, because, you know, this is a reaction. That's an emotional reaction, an emotional statement to the idea that Ramadi happened, the most recent time Ramadi. And I'm speaking of Islamic State taking over Ramadi after we've had the fall of Mosul. Supposedly, we've been putting more military power in there. The ground forces are being more competent. And then Islamic State does what they do best, which is they have a, a they mass on a certain place and do a sudden assault and they were able to take Ramadi. Um, supposedly, they took Ramadi in the face of, uh, you know, more Iraqi security forces on the ground, a larger military presence that they were fighting against, and they were successful. So the natural tendency is to then say, well, they're just that the Iraqi army is just screwed up. The security forces are bad. And, and and so it's easy to say that they lack the will to fight. But I think you're overlooking when you say that several of the factors and the nuance of what kind of has, has, has led the Iraqi army to the state that it's in which is the fact that it's an organization that is very young, as it, it, the, the current institution is. And because of that, it has no uh, leadership, has no in institutional inertia, has none of that. Uh, those things that you need that make militaries really effective. Um, and so it is performing poorly. But to completely blame it on the lack of will to fight, I, it misses many of these points. I completely agree. And you have to remember where Carter is coming from. He is going to be held accountable on some level. And the issue of accountability is important because on one side, you can say, hey, we've given Iraq billions of dollars, some of the most cutting-edge equipment, and access to some of the finest trainers in the world. Simply, why aren't you guys delivering the goods? But like Paul said, it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, and to a point, I would also say that he's messaging. that you know This is less about him being, uh, uh, you know, this diagnosing the problem and more about trying to... to galvanize certain actions um, and send messaging both to the Iraqi government and several of the other actors on the ground and some of the other foreign sponsors that are also supporting the Iraqi military, namely Iran. And, and so to kind of unpack some of the stuff that I'm talking about, you know, when I talk about the Iraqi your army being young, most people will look at me cross-eyed when I say that and say, well, no, the Iraqi army has been around since the 
16th century, they've been supporting the Ottoman uh, Turks, and then there's been a continuous line of an Iraqi military in some kind of capacity since then. Um, but I, I and that that is very true. But the fact is, militaries are constantly turning over, and, and this Iraqi military was completely dismantled in 2003 and has been completely restructured and rebuilt from nearly the bottom up from scratch. Um, and that's kind of unprecedented. And, and building a military from the ground up is extremely hard. And I would say one of the, 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 the biggest advantages any military institution has is that institutional inertia, that institutional knowledge that allows it to be successful over time because you do have constant turnover. No single person or group of people makes a military. It's that group knowledge that makes a military successful. Um, and because we've been restructuring this whole time, you know, the Iraqi army is very weak because of it. And it's funny he mentions the will to fight as well, because that's a key part of it. When you talk about cohesion, esprit de corps, and actually having that fire in your belly that compels you to go and take the fight to another person. And one of the problems we've seen endemic to the Iraqi army is widespread corruption. We've seen a lack of transparency. We've seen a lack of faith in in the higher command chain and also at the political level. And these are not necessarily things that really compel your young Iraqi soldier to go and fight what's perceived at least as a dedicated, ruthless enemy like the Islamic State. That describes the state of affairs today. And it's very interesting because, I mean, Paul, you've pointed out in the past that um, not too many years ago, Iraq had one of the most effective fighting armies in the Arab world. And, uh, you know, this cadre of leadership under Saddam Hussein um, no longer is with the Iraqi army per se because they were dismantled. That doesn't mean that their skills, their knowledge um, don't exist. They're simply fighting on a different side at this point. Yeah, their skills and knowledge kind of went elsewhere when they got disbanded in 2003. A lot of them actually joined the insurgency and there's even senior Iraqi officers who now are on the side of Islamic State. So the problem is when they fragmented, you know, you still need to earn a wage, you still need to make some money. And these guys, they picked a side. It wasn't necessarily the side that we wanted. The best way to look at the Iraqi military in the sense of a midterm history of it is you know, this is an institution that was built under the Ba'athist regime. Um, in fact, before the Ba'athist regime, it had been a military dictatorship. You have the Ba'athist regime. Saddam Hussein is in charge of this. And, and to a point, the, the Iraqi military was designed under kind of Soviet structures. This is all in the, under the guise of the Cold War as well. Uh, and, and they're uh, working with the Soviet Union and Soviet trainers to kind of build that kind of structure. Um, and then we go into the, we flow into the Iran-Iraq war, which lasts for over a decade, um, is extremely uh, trench warfare. A lot of people actually kind of liken it to World War One in many ways. Um, very brutal fighting, very stagnant fighting. And then um, roll that forward to not much later uh, in time, you have the first Gulf War. And you have the U.S. military basically, and, and its coalition partners, I should be fair, um, completely and utterly dismantle the forces that went into Kuwait. And really, you know, degraded the ability of the Iraqi military. Uh, and that's really where it starts to kind of go downhill with the Iraqi military, I would say, argue for the most part. So you have that, you know, destruction in, in the Gulf War, and then you have this entire sanctions regime for the for the following decade. And, and that sanctions regime basically it limited resources, limited training. Uh, and it's still also, you know, the, the, the I don't know if the Iraqi army ever really was able to kind of do a, a lessons, an after action review like you would see in some Western militaries where they kind of like lessons learned from the last fight because there was much political jockeying. And that's the other part of this is remember a lot of the Iraqi military is this is built on tribal structures. And, and you know, it's a Sunni minority tribal structures that are running the, the military and are just as afraid of the military and remaining control of it as they are as making an effective military. In fact, that they're much more concerned with it being under control and being less of a coup 
problem than they are about actually having an effective force that could go out there and maybe defend against the United States, uh, for example. Then you get again to 2003, round two, the United States military actually invades Iraq, again, dismembers what's left of it, um, and then disbands it completely. And as and to Ben's point, that's where you have a lot of the officer corps uh, um, and what's remaining of this institutional knowledge in this military that's already severely degraded, now basically flowing into an insurgency and working for the uh, Sunni tribal structure as it starts to pit itself both in a sectarian civil war and uncertainty against the United States occupation forces. Well, and I think that you touch on a really key point right there, which goes to the heart of why do people fight? Because as Americans, and I think also um, as a Brit, that you can understand, we have a sense of nationhood that confines um, around our geography to a certain extent. I mean, historically, it wasn't that way in the beginning necessarily, but we both come from areas where a nation expanded within the bounds of its geography and filled that space. And so we have a very geographic sense of identity. And that's not true everywhere in the world where borders move or are redrawn, you know, based on warfare and other things. And, and, you know, you touch on tribalism within Iraqi society. Um, even under Saddam, weren't the officers really fighting along tribal lines because they had a Sunni minority that was empowered, that we, they were empowered and determined to protect? Absolutely. And so when you think about Iraq as a nation, you know, the, the, the sense of nationhood and fighting for nationhood, that flows back and forth. That's not a consistent thing. It's not a constant thing. And so Iraq at times, especially when you talk about Iraq fighting Iran and the Iraq-Iran war, very much had a sense of nationhood. But as we as all these things do, they can they can ebb and flow and degrade. And all this, you know, that, that brief history I just gave you has kind of degraded that sense of nationhood. And in many ways, then not that people you know, we always talk about Iraq and the the different ethnic and sectarian lines that divide it. it that wasn't a, a something that was barely being kept in control. Uh, as much as that's where people default to um, in many ways. You, you know, it's the love of one's own and also just understanding one's own. You gravitate towards your community that you identify with and that's what you fight for. So as Iraq as a nation was being, you know, attacked and dismantled, um, rightfully or wrongly, uh, wrongly, you know, that's where, you know, communities sort of devolved back to the structures that they understood. As Iraq itself couldn't protect itself, all of a sudden my tribal structure, my, my sectarian structure, my ethnicity, that's the community I could rely on. Uh, and that's how it started to devolve. And so that sense of nationhood for Iraq is devolving. And then you start to add on the ideas that you have other poles of power directly surrounding Iraq that are kind of driving these fights with Saudi Arabia, with Iran, with Turkey, and all kind of influencing these different battles throughout the region that's kind of become a sectarian show-off to a certain degree. That further kind of exacerbates those lines and divides the nationhood that we once felt for that country. And there's an interesting parallel here because it's not just in Iraq. It makes me think back to the recent Scottish referendum on independence within the British Army, which is world-renowned for its ability and professionalism. I have to get that in there. You have a number of dedicated Scottish regiments, Welsh regiments. And when it looked like Scotland might actually devolve from the Union, we had this question, what happens to the Scottish regiments? They're part of the British Army. But would Scottish soldiers all of a sudden leave and then form whatever defence force that Scotland had? And that was an interesting thought experiment because, you know, you think of the United Kingdom as being united and having a very well-developed military. And ultimately, one of the reasons that the military is good is because of professionalism. You have well-trained, well-paid soldiers who are motivated and dedicated and well-equipped to go and conduct operations overseas. Whereas, like Paul said, a lot of that was eroded in 
Iraq, as well as having these sectarian divisions, you then suddenly had a, an officer corps, a, a key leadership that wasn't necessarily as engaged with the process as they should have been. You have this situation where a military grouping might have X amount of soldiers on paper, but a lot of them effectively are paid to stay at home. They give half their wages to the officer who then puts it into his pocket. So when it comes time to fight against a very rapidly evolving and dangerous foe like Islamic State, you're limited into what you can muster, and you don't necessarily have the command and control and professionalism you'd expect to be able to face up to that threat. How does that impact war fighting strategy, um, you know, on the ground when you have foot soldiers basically who are not uh, trained or empowered to make tactical decisions for themselves? What does that do to the nature of an army? Well, that's a very interesting, you know, the, the empowerment of lower the lower echelons of soldiers a very interesting debate back and forth. And really, it depends on what you're working with, the, the, the tools that you're working with. Um, you know, in a lot of Western militaries and higher-end militaries, it's easy to kind of have that, you know, empowerment at the lower echelons on a tactical level um, because you can afford to do the training to, to kind of make that uh, plausible and make that make sense. And that's kind of a luxury to, to a certain degree. A lot of countries cannot rely on that. The United States can basically have fire team leaders um, on the level making tactical decisions on their own or within a construct that makes sense um, because they can train them to do so over and over and over again. Um, In militaries, that's an all-volunteer force that's billions of dollars expended on defense. You pull that back and look at other militaries that are relying on conscripts and have a fraction of the defense spending um, that that, when you talk about some of these other militaries – uh, they very much need a top-down system because the resources can't go to to training at all levels, and really that's where you have these officer-led, you know, officer-dominant systems because the officers are the small cadre. They have the resources to train heavily in warfare and competently in warfare, and everybody else has to be rigidly under them and under that control for that military to make sense and operate smoothly. Absolutely. And to use a somewhat martial metaphor here, it's like having a knife. It's like making a good knife and honing the edge over and over again. You have a very sharp edge that it takes time to develop. The minute that you let the blade go dull or actually you break the blade completely and you have to manufacture a new one, it takes time to get back to the level you're at before. And money. And money, absolutely. And that's something about mili- you know, established militaries. It's, it's maintaining that edge. From all of this, it sounds as though U.S. and Britain both have a very difficult uh, prospect in front of them because we are in the process of reshaping an army to defend a territory where actually the borders no longer exist in the way that we're used to seeing them drawn on a map. The Islamic State has overrun. We now refer to the Iraq-Syria battle space. Um, It's a very fluid environment. And the loyalties and the groupings of the fighters are very fluid as well. I think it's interesting to look at, you know, when you – even if you look at what we're doing, the training mission right now in Iraq, it's different than what we were doing post-2003. And I say that because post-2003, we were trying to build a military that still thought of Iraq as a single entity, a single nation. And so we wanted the military to be completely inclusive, ethnically speaking, statistically speaking. And so there was a, a you know this constant drive to bring both you know Sunni Arabs back into the military to a certain degree and be represented, as well as bringing the, some of the Kurdish Peshmerga forces in to try and make a unified military that represents a unified nation. The minute the U.S. left at the end of 2011, that quickly broke down. And, and a lot of the, you know, the debathification that we saw from, from uh, Prime Minister Maliki pushed a lot of these, these, these minorities that have been brought into the military, pushed them back out. And he also, again, less about the military being an effective fighting force and more about the military being loyal to him and the, and the power structure that was in place in Baghdad at the time, in the present time. 
led to the, that, that patronage network, actually, that Ben was referencing earlier. It led to the appointment of officers that were not appointed because of skill, but because of loyalty. And that completely destroys the military's ability. Um, it leads to corruption. It leads to ineffective uh, training and, and therefore ineffective fighting. And that's what we've seen. Um, and, and so now the U.S. is back in with its coalition partners trying to train. And we're trying to train within those aspects probably with a little bit more uh, a dose of reality in the sense of making an inclusive military. But we're still demanding to bring both the Kurds in in some kind of capacity and play nice with them with Baghdad and bring Sunni tribal elements in to fight Islamic State because we think that the answer to Islamic State is, is with the Sunni community as a whole and them turning kind of like the awakening moment that we saw in 2008. But it's not being done in this, you know, kind of uh, idealistic way it was being done in the future. And again, we're starting from scratch. It's being done in a different way almost to, to a completely different concept. And they're not training in a vacuum. Iraq is inflamed. You have Islamic State running around, creating all, all manner of havoc. And what was interesting to see in something like the recent decree operation, which we covered extensively on site, was actually the way that, because everyone hates Islamic State, you're seeing unusual alliances form. And at one stage in the operation, you had US aircraft in the overhead, you had Iranian IRGC guys on the ground and an advisory role, you had Sunni and Shia militias working together, and then some form of Iraqi security force presence, all working to try and get Islamic State out of that position. The huge caveat on that is, is while they're working together because everyone is against Islamic State that much because they presented themselves that much as a threat to the country, um, they're still working together under, it's very tentative, and there's still a lot of tension in these relationships. And you could easily see, uh, you know, this devolve at any given time with Shia militias operating in Sunni areas with potential ethnic uh, con- you, you genocide, uh, potentially, or dislocations or, or what have you, um, reprisal attacks against the Sunni community, which would drive the Sunni community even further away from trying to deal with Islamic State. You also see uh, conflict between Iraqi security forces and Shia militias, um, both between themselves. We've seen some, some interesting... Uh, uh, conflicts in Baghdad over some buildings and some some miscommunication. Uh, and then we've also seen conflicts between Shia militias and Peshmerga. And there's an ongoing dispute between Baghdad and Arbil over places like Kirkuk. And then add to that supposed arrogance of Iranian officers working with Iraqi security forces who take an exception to that as well. So at every level, you've got friction. Yeah, that's actually one of the interesting things that I we always should point out. As much as Baghdad is having to work with Iran and turn to it, don't forget that they fought this terrible war um, within, within, yeah, for over a decade, for within recent history, um, and so there's still enmity to a certain degree. Uh, it's 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 dangerous to paint this as Baghdad and the Shia community is completely in uh, working with hand in hand with Iran all the time. There is self interest operating there too. I think that all that really begs the question of the million dollar question: Is the path to success from a Western standpoint? Are we looking at this all wrong? I mean, do we possibly need to really? take a hard look at what we consider to be territory that can be defended at the communities of people that are willing to defend it. Do we need to think of Iraq in the same nation state way that we think of ourselves? Um, and what are the pitfalls of that? I think you're starting to see the realistic approach now. Um, as painful it is, as it is and as, as frustrating as it can be, um, you're, you're seeing people already look at Iraq in several different ways. I mean, we've seen several U.S. politicians call out and saying that, you know, this is de facto three different states. And we've actually seen uh, Congress, when it was trying to fund the training mission recently to Iraq for this next uh, upcoming fiscal year, you know, they tried to push through a, an amendment that uh, 
basically funded the Kurds outside of Baghdad and also the Sunni tribal structures as well. So that would have, you know, again, separate funding completely out of Baghdad's purview. That's a sovereignty question and, and kind of de facto says, that, you know, this is a separate thing. And politics have, have kind of shut that down and the White House has set on that. But yeah, people are thinking of it differently. And, and I think also people, as you look at how they're designing this, this is about protecting what is the core interests of Western interests in Iraq. And really, that's basically making sure there's no uh, and I, I want this is kind of in a relative sense humanitarian disaster. I know it already is a humanitarian disaster, but make sure there's no no outright genocide. And also the oil fields, you know, protecting oil markets and those giant contributors to those oil markets, both in the, uh, the KRG and down in the in the Shia core down south. And let's not forget a lot of the problems actually originated. 150 years ago when lines were drawn on a map. And the problem is it's very easy to divide uh, land geography on a map. But actually when you're talking about dividing societies, peoples, that's where things get really complicated. Yeah, and I'll end with this last caveat to the whole point. Dividing Iraq completely, though, outright is not as easy as it sounds because you have to make sustainable states if you do divide it. And making sustainable states in some of these statelets or, or subsections that we're talking about would be impossible, which would further exacerbate basically warfare because people will compete over resources. Uh, it sounds like a future debates and analyses to come. All right. Thank you both so much. I Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. In this next segment, we'll be taking a look at Russia, which is a perennially interesting country. And clearly, last year and this year, there's been more stuff going on for us to really focus on. What were the challenges in Ukraine, sanctions against Russia, and then counter-sanctions back against Europe and the West, and also the drop in oil prices, which has put significant strain on the Russian economy. Throughout all of this, it's been very interesting to watch Russia's President Vladimir Putin Interesting, but not always easy. He actually disappeared for 10 days back in March with no explanation. And that event got Russia analysts talking and thinking about the Cold War art form known as Kremlinology. And for more on that, let's turn to Stratfor's senior analyst for the former Soviet region, Lauren Goodrich, who wrote our most recent series on Kremlinology. Lauren, welcome. Thank you. So can you start by describing for maybe some listeners who weren't around during the time, exactly how criminology was used during the Soviet period. Uh, what, what was involved with it and why was it important? Well, criminology is pretty much an art form um, and could apply to the study of any country's elites or government. But criminology is critical specifically for Russia because Russia's ever-changing web of alliances and rivals and influencers inside the Kremlin elite really do reflect the stability of the country and the direction of the country overall. The Kremlin is, of course, a hyper-secretive place filled with disinformation and intrigue. So during the Soviet period, it became really critical to look at these minuscule little scraps of information that could be pieced together in order to create the larger picture. Because the Kremlin never shows you what the actual picture is. So you have to take the, the hints and the clues. In fact, Winston Churchill had his own opinion on criminology, didn't he? Very much so. He, he, he said it was, um, I'm going to misquote, of course, but along the lines of the Kremlin is really two dogs fighting over a bone underneath um, a blanket. And you never know until one dog comes out with the, with the limbs of the other who is actually on top. And that's still true today, right? Very much so. So in the Soviet period, there was criminology included things like studying photographs of meetings and social events, who was standing next to whom, who was actually in attendance. An example of this would have been um, when the head of the NKVD, Beria, went missing. 
Um, no one knew until he didn't show up to the Bolshoi Ballet when every Kremlin elite was at the Bolshoi Ballet. What we found out later was he was already arrested and was about to be put on trial. So that that's an example of, of using photographs of meetings and social events. Another clue is looking at where the Russian forces are. Uh, Russia doesn't easily publish where the Russian forces are, particularly in the Soviet period. So going back to the Beria example... When Beria went missing, there were some elite Russian military forces that moved from the Western Front in Germany back to Moscow. Why would they go back to Moscow? Because Khrushchev needed the military to actually stand behind him um, in order to arrest Beria. Another really good example for criminologists is scouring Russian media. Each media has its biases and then also can be used for propaganda purposes. So during the Soviet period, the Communist Party liked to use um, Trude and uh, Pravda, or the Russian military liked to use Red Star. So scouring the Russian media, you really get to figure out what the elites are actually concerned with, who they're targeting next, etc. That's interesting because normally certain propaganda materials might be discarded because of their inherent bias. But if you know how to read them, and actually you can read between the lines and really see what the message is and who's putting it out, there's a lot you can extract from that, right? Yeah, my favorite example is probably when Andropov was trying to get into control. He was head of the KGB at the time, and he ordered a series of pro-KGB stories throughout the Russian media that really kind of bolstered the popularity of the KGB at the time. And so Andropov used this power and this shift of pro-KGB in order to pass a whole bunch of new expansions of power for the KGB itself. That way, once Brezhnev actually passed away, he was able to jump into uh, leading the country. So. Was there ever a time when this wasn't a way that the Russian elite used to communicate? I mean, for instance, maybe during the, the Gorbachev or Yeltsin periods, was this something that ever just like fell out of vogue? Well, criminology did taper off during the Gorbachev-Yeltsin periods, mainly because the West did not see Russia as the threat. However, if you look at criminology and you look at all the clues that came out um, during Yeltsin's last few years, um, and you pick those apart, you can you can see Putin's rise, and you can see that it was inevitable that Putin was coming in. So you had Russia in a serious economic crisis, which led to regional crises across the country. There was um, a really big political tug-of-war between the liberals and the communists taking place, and Yeltsin's family. And then, of course, we had the Chechen crisis taking place. And so there's all these crises at once, which created a perfect storm. And the Russian public and the elites blamed Yeltsin. And so he needed to bring someone in in order to clamp down on the country regionally, economically, politically, the, um, security-wise. And it had to be someone from the KGB FSB camp. But it needed to be a personality that wasn't so hawkish that he that Yeltsin himself wasn't threatened. So he thought Vladimir Putin was the perfect example of bringing someone in that was a literally a little bit more open-minded FSBer than than many of the other FSB KGB figures. And so he brought Putin in out of the St. Petersburg circles. What he didn't understand, what Yeltsin did not understand, is that Putin could really appeal to pretty much everyone, the liberals, the security circles. And, and he also proved it, his ability to lead on getting the country back on track regionally with the Chechen crisis, with the economic crisis. So it was almost inevitable that Putin was going to succeed. And all you had to do was look at all the little pieces and put it together. And um, it was pretty much obvious that Putin was going to be coming in right after Yeltsin.
But then I suppose as well, Putin was well placed to sweep in and take power. You know, he had an intelligence background. He knew a lot of secrets. He moved in the right circles and he had the connections to actually reinforce his position once he was in, right? He had the connections and foundation, which, I mean, the most powerful foundation you can have inside of Russia is to control the security services. Hmm. But it's not an end-all be-all. I mean, Beria controlled the NKVD and he was still ousted. So for Putin, he had to appeal to all the sides. He had to appeal to the oligarchs. He had to appeal to the liberal-minded um, economists and financial circles. And then he had to appeal to the super hawks um, of security. And so, and that's how Putin has pretty much maintained his power over the last 15 years is being able to balance and arbitrate between all these different groups. So how does that uh, leave him today? I mean, going back to the Yeltsin era, you're talking about things that have parallels. I mean, there's financial crisis in Russia. There are regional crises. There's conflict near or within, depending on where you want to draw the borders. How is Putin positioned right now? And, and why are you thinking again about criminology? Well, Putin is in a place that he's not used to. It's almost like he's in Yeltsin's place from 1998. The only difference is, is that the Russian public hasn't turned on him yet. Russia has slipped into another recession. Um, there's more than half of the Russian regions are, are teetering towards bankruptcy at this moment. Um, many of the Russian firms are needing financial bailouts. Russia has shown um, a major failure in Ukraine over the past year and a half. Um, Russia is isolated from the West and is seen as the number one enemy of the United States again for the first time since the fall of the Soviet Union. It's almost like a perfect storm of crises all happening at once again. The only difference is, is that Putin has not lost the love of the Russian people yet. Um, he's still wildly popular, 86% popularity rating. This is what we need to watch next on as far as whether Putin can continue to hold on to power is the popularity rating. The second thing we need to watch is the elites underneath them. It was very easy to manage all these different groups inside of Russia over the past 15 years when times were of plenty, when there was plenty of cash, plenty of resources, plenty of positions and, and powerful um, companies to give to the elites. This is changing. Um, resources are really shrinking at this moment. And so we are seeing an increased infighting among the elites. And if someone's going to take down Putin, it likely won't be the Russian people. It'll be the elites themselves turning on him. And that seems to be reflected in the people he trusts. It appears that his inner circle is getting smaller and smaller on an almost monthly basis. Very much so. And this is going to be critical and why we need to use criminology to really see where the elites are at this moment and going forward on to see if they are they going to still accept Putin as leader of the country. As you think about uh, how you put those clues together, do you have maybe more tools when you look at criminology than you did in the past? More tools, but more disinformation because of that. <laughs> that's that's the catch-22 on this, is that um, there's so much more information because, um, I mean, Russia is an open country. It's not like the Soviet Union was. So there's much more media. There's the internet it has skyrocketed inside of Russia itself. There's a lot more pictures and videos and clues to consider. However, because of that, it really does create kind of a muddled picture much more so than in the past. It's not as clear as it used to be. Another tool which has really helped as far as our use of criminology is social media. Um, social media wasn't around, of course, in the Soviet period. And now we have certain Russian politicians and even some of the elites underneath Putin uh, himself that use social media like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube to really convey not only their political positions, but we can see clues on where are they? Are they even in the country? What is their mindset? What are they doing? Who are they meeting with? And what's interesting to see is the raw nature 
some of the Twitter feeds we actually get from them, there seems to be at times an alarming lack of filter. People will literally say what's on their mind, which is revealing, and certainly something you don't really expect always from a Western politician. Very much so.、Um, for example,、uh, Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Rogozin is is a prolific Twitter user, and he has very openly considered aggressive natures inside of Ukraine on Twitter.、Um, someone like Chechen President Kadyrov is prolific Instagrammer, and his pictures、um, really show his loyalty, his diehard loyalty to Putin. On Instagram, he even has stated outright that he's willing to lay down his life for Putin. And this came at a time when Putin seemed to be under siege、um, among the elites. And certainly, I know from his Instagram account, he has a penchant for gold-plated firearms as well. <laughs> Very much so. But Kadyrov is 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 an interesting one to consider because he has multiple agendas when it comes to his social media. Because. His position inside the country is very different than other politicians because he pretty much is the king of his own region.、Hmm. He has his own fiefdom, where it, he's not just a parliamentarian inside of Moscow. He has his own territory that no one else rules but him, and the entire stability of the southern region of Russia really depends on him being able to continue to rule that. So he uses social media in order to cultivate this cult around him of being the strong man, but also being a leader that the Chechen people love. He's enormously popular. To where on his Instagram he he shows sponsoring children's events or wishing people happy birthday or weddings or weddings, <laughs> but he also shows that he's the tough guy that he can rule over Chechnya, which is a volatile place, and he he he's made it into this cult where he believes that he's the only one that can really rule over Chechnya and keep it this stable. At the same time, he uses his Instagram almost to kind of throw it in the FSB's face of I'm in charge of Chechnya, you can't come into Chechnya. And that makes him a key ally for Putin, doesn't it? And it's interesting that he actually, you know, his allegiance is with Putin personally, not just with the Russian state or the Kremlin. Very much so. What was interesting in December, when、um, there was a really large struggle taking place between the FSB and between the GRU over who can pretty much act inside of Ukraine. Kadyrov gathered twenty thousand Chechen troops. They started chanting their loyalty to Putin, saying they would all die for Putin, and asked Putin to send them into Ukraine. Yeah, I remember because they physically formed up in a stadium, you know, with all their equipment and weapons ready to go, and that was a very powerful statement, a very powerful image as well. So it started off on just Russian media, and then moved to YouTube and just spread around the world, and really showed that Putin has this this little mini army. That is at his control. That doesn't fall underneath the regular Russian military, or doesn't fall underneath the the FSB. That's a very strong message to the elites inside of Moscow. So, going back to the situation with Putin today, and and particularly, you know, as we've seen the challenges、um, he's facing mounting over the last few months, did you ever find out where he went for those ten days in March? No, but I have theories. <laughs> so. Stepping back from my theories, let's look at the puzzle pieces、um, going into his his disappearance. You actually really have to start with the failure in Ukraine because it wasn't just a Russian failure in Ukraine; it was an FSB failure inside of Ukraine. They did not predict Maidan actually turning over the government. Russia was blindsided by this. Putin was blindsided by this, and soon after, you had Putin announcing a restructuring of the FSB. That's unheard of for someone that is an FSB member to try to do. Soon after that, there were rumors that Putin was trying to place non-FSB loyalists within the Interior Ministry, which is an FSB rival. And then you had Chechen President Kadyrov holding that rally with the twenty thousand Chechen troops,、um, really taunting the FSB that they were they could be the ones to go into Ukraine. So you have all these puzzle pieces that really showed the FSB versus the non-FSBers、um, struggling back and forth. Now things happened at lightning speed in the four weeks. Leading to and including Putin's disappearance, 
The FSB chief showed up in Washington, D.C. A week later, opposition leader Boris Nemtsov was assassinated, which, of course, was later attributed to Chechen forces and was rumored to be connected to uh, Kadyrov. A few days after the assassination, Kadyrov posts pictures of him and Putin laughing together and embracing. Kadyrov states on his Instagram that he's willing to lay down his life for Putin. The very next day, Putin goes missing. While Putin's missing, the arrests of the Chechens for Nemtsov's assassination takes place. The FSB has a sit-down with Kadyrov that we do not know what happened. And Kadyrov's closest ally, presidential aide Surkov, leaves the country unexpectedly. So all these puzzle pieces that by themselves just look like, Hmm. you know, random events that are taking place inside of Russia. But when you string it all together, you really see a very, very clear FSB, non-FSB power struggle that centers on the GRU, Surkov, and Kadyrov, all pushing up against the FSB. So the question that comes out of his disappearance is, did Putin align too far with the non-FSB groups in which the FSB had to almost put a leash on Putin and pull him back? Um, Because as soon as Putin comes back after his 10-day disappearing act, he acts rather strangely. There's a power struggle in which the FSB gains all these new powers inside of Russia. And then secondly, Putin starts to talk about how tired he is of being president. That is very strange mm-hmm. for someone as strong as Putin. And he's to never mention. expressed that sentiment any time before, has he? No, and he really starts to reflect on all the things he's missed in his life because of being president. So it makes you wonder if he is now resigned to leaving the presidency soon or if the FSB has made that decision for him. There's a lot of questions coming out of the disappearance and whether Putin is still fully in control of the country. Well, so if Putin wasn't the leader of Russia, what would that state of affairs look like and who might we be looking at instead? It depends on if you're talking about short-term or long-term. In the short-term, it has to be someone from the security services. And there are too many problems affecting Russia with the economic situation, the region starting to rubble, rumble again, what is considered pretty much the enemy getting onto Russia's border. Russia's in such uh, a delicate place at this time that you need a strong arm to come in. Now, how strong of arm to come in? I wouldn't say that someone as hawkish um, as someone like Dmitry Rogozin could actually come into the presidency. But there's some very pragmatic for Russian standards, FSB people that would love to be president. Someone like Sergei Ivanov has been salivating over the presidency for 10 years. Someone like uh, Defense Minister Shoigu, though, is incredibly popular among the people and is considered to be seen as a neutral player within Russia himself. However, he's not orthodox, so I think that would be a really big problem with the Russian people. So that's all in the short term. In the longer term, there's a lot of up-and-comers, but they all seem to be the sons and sometimes daughters, of all the current Kremlin elite. So it's almost like the next generation is going to inherit this elite struggle that we're seeing take place at this time. So going back to the the Ukraine situation for just a moment, do you have any sense that the Russian people perceive Putin's handling of the Ukraine affair as a misstep? Initially, but I think that they see it more as an FSB misstep. And the Russian government has done a dazzling job of convincing the Russian people that it was a U.S.-backed coup. And because of this, um, it started off to where the Russian people were almost stunned by what happened in Ukraine, and then they rallied around the presidency and uh, around the Kremlin soon after. And that popularity is is still um, riding high at this moment. And so at this time, it's it's not a failure as it was, say, a year and a half ago, 
Instead, it's been completely flipped and turned on its head to being a U.S. versus um, Russia issue. But as you look at uh, the situation with the federal budget, um, defense spending is one area that isn't being cut as a result of the, the crisis with oil prices. If there is a reduction in pension payouts, would that change that situation? It could start. However, there was an interesting poll that came out, out of Nevada in which the Russian people said that they would um, rather have a decrease in their own salaries than cut defense spending. I mean, that really shows the Russian people's uh, rallying around the government and hypersensitivity to anything that's happening between Russia and the West at this time. And it's there is that dynamic that, you know, they are living in dangerous times, especially on the wake of the, the U.S.-Iran deal. And for a long time, the, you know, Iran seemed to occupy a lot of the, the U.S.'s focus. And traditionally, Russia has seen the U.S. as a great adversary. But with Washington being tied down you know, in the Middle East, you know, focusing on Iran, um, now that when that goes away, do you think Russia feels potentially more threatened that the U.S. is going to have more resources to potentially counter Russia uh, in whatever way they can? Very much so. Russia is pretty much losing one of its only cards against the United States, Iran. Hmm. Um, Russia doesn't have many tools to really counter the United States and any tools that it can use, such as military buildups, missile deployments are very expensive. Russia doesn't have the extra cash to have an arms race like it did in the past. I think this is why we've seen a little bit of a hedging coming out of certain Kremlin officials, such as Sergei Ivanov, in which he said, we don't want war with the United States. We're not suicidal. Hmm. They know that there is a limit to their ability to stand up to the United States. However, they do see the United States and the West as their biggest enemy and threat at this time, even though really their biggest threat is internally inside of Russia. Well, this is definitely going to be one that's high on our radar for quite some time to come, I believe. So, Lauren, thank you very much for making the time today. Thanks. Before we leave you today, we'll take a quick peek inside the Stratfor mailbag. As our listeners know, we've been asking you to send us questions, feedback, and ideas for future podcasts at www.stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. And some of you did. Here's one from a new subscriber, Patrick Bucher, in Lucerne, Switzerland. He's been looking for comprehensive analysis on what he calls a crucial point and asks, to what extent are Russian forces engaged in the combat in eastern Ukraine? Is Russia sending weaponry or other military equipment to the region? And is it possible to do so without being detected by U.S. surveillance? He also wants to know if Russia is supporting separatists in eastern Ukraine with military advisors or more actively on the battlefield. Here's one of Stratfor's military analyst, Sim Tak, with the response. Actually, throughout the conflict in eastern Ukraine, we've very clearly seen the Russian involvement there. We haven't even required uh, U.S. satellites or, or any of those fancy sensors to be able to know that they are there. From the ground in eastern Ukraine, we've seen photographs, uh, we've seen video, uh, all showing military personnel that clearly shows the behavior of, of the Russian military. We've been able to identify specific types of equipment, specific uh, main battle tanks, armored vehicles that were not present in the Ukrainian military, but do exist in, in the Russian military. And then on, on top of that, Russian troops inside eastern Ukraine have actually been exercising very poor operational security. These troops have been posting pictures of themselves in, in clearly recognizable areas of eastern Ukraine, while also simply posting geotech uh, statements to Russian social media sites. The Russian military has been trying to crack down on that, but you know, from time to time soldiers keep doing this, basically confirming to us that, that they are still operating there. 
One specific thing we also noticed in photographs was the presence of particular Eastern Ukrainian separatist soldiers that had the very clear facial traits of the the more Asian-looking Eastern Russian soldiers. These people are obviously not indigenous to Eastern Ukraine and are a clear sign of Eastern Russian military units being deployed into the conflict in Eastern Ukraine. We initially saw the Russian involvement ramp up uh, shortly after the the downing of the MH17 aircraft. Um, at that point, the, the Russians gradually started increasing their presence um, until right before the, the initial Minsk agreement, they got to a level of about 12 to 16 battalion-sized units operating in, in diverse areas of eastern Ukraine. 12 to 16 battalions translates to approximately 8,000 to 10,000 troops, um, which is pretty much in line with the estimates that we've seen coming out of Ukrainian intelligence services and U.S. and NATO statements. Once again, that was military analyst Simtak, and thanks again to Mr. Bukher and Lucerne for that question. If you have questions or comments to share, please drop us a line at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. Be sure to give us your full name and an idea of how to pronounce it, as well as the city and the country you're writing from. That's it for today. Thanks again for joining us. And as always, for more in-depth analysis and forecasts on global issues, please visit stratfor.com. 